Well, good morning again, and welcome to Grace Bible Church. What a wonderful time. I, I always love singing with the saints, and I hope, I hope that you guys will join me and drown me out when I sing loud, because I love to sing loud. I love to sing out to our Lord. I love to, to express praise to Him, and I hope that you guys will do so as well. We're going to return, or are returning to our study in Ephesians chapter 3 as we continue to make our way through this wonderful epistle of uh, the, the epistle to the Ephesians. And we've made it all the way to verse, uh, really verse 3, ver- or chapter 3, verse 9. So this morning we will pick, our, pick, pick up in that place. Let me pray for us, and then we will, we will get started. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again and praise you that we could be, can be here together, gathered here, Father, as we labor to understand your word. Father, I pray that you would give us understanding through your spirit. Father, I pray that the spirit would move amongst these dear saints so that they would understand, so that they're understanding would lead to application father i pray that that application then would lead to lives that are pleasing to you we thank you and praise you for this time again in christ's name amen well before i read the passage this morning i we did have our discussion in the men's group and i one of the things that came out that really i wanted to share with you guys that we talked about was the we labor through to understand the scripture we labor through we every sunday we open the word of god and we and we read it and then we explain it and it's like the shampoo bottle or it, i think it's the you know lather rinse repeat lather rinse repeat that's what we do it's continually every sunday we do the same thing we read the scripture we explain the scripture and then we repeat well, we do so because we want you to grow. We want you to grow in Christ. We, I, I'm laboring to do so so that Christ would be formed in you, using Paul's words. And so you would take, the, the hope is, the prayer is, and I just prayed it just a few minutes ago, the prayer is, is that, that the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, would, would then begin to apply these truths in your lives. Now, I will, at times, I will give you uh, application. I certainly will try to give you implication, and you'll hear the application come through the sermon. But I want you to understand that there is one true meaning of Scripture, and that's what we're laboring to understand. That's why we go through and we look at the definitions of words and why we look at the grammar in the text so that we can understand what is being taught what is being conveyed by the author of scripture ultimately by the holy spirit but after that once we understand we want to apply we want to ask that god would use that scripture in our lives to uh, cause us to live to his glory well let me read ephesians chapter 3 i'm going to start i'm going to start in verse I don't usually do it this way, but I'm going to start in verse 8. 
Now I'm going to start in verse 1. So I'll read, I'm going to read the entire passage here. For this reason, starting in verse 1, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, grace, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Now, just a cursory reading of the New Testament would reveal that Jesus' second coming is imminent, meaning that he could come at any time. Jesus' disciples, including us, have waited expectantly for his return from the moment he ascended into the heavens. We have expected his return at any moment, at any time. Yet we must never forget and I think this is where people have gotten off track at times, we must never forget that we have been given the task of making disciples of the nations while we wait. We've been given the task of preaching the gospel. Now, we don't have to dive very deep, into, dive very deep to understand what this world will be like just prior to the Lord's return. In Luke 18.8, he says, Jesus says that, uh, actually asked one of the most difficult questions in the new testament he says this in luke 18 8 however when the son of man comes that's him when he comes and and returns will he find faith on the earth now this verse suggests that when christ returns those who possess a true faith may just be as rare as in the days before the flood when noah preached think about that When the flood came upon the earth, there were only eight people who were saved out of millions. Jesus' words capture the spirit of those times. In Luke 17, 27, he says this, They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus warns in verse 30, 17 verse 30, this again, Luke 17, 30, he says this, it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. I think that the state of the church gives us the best indication of the current condition of our world. Believe me, if you look across the state of the church, and especially in North America, what you'll find is a 
huge amount of confusion. We're supposed to be spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. The gospel, uh, the, the good news that is that Christ's atoning death on the cross reconciles man with his creator and fellow, or man with his fellow man. We know that man's rebellion has created enmity between his creator and himself and between man and man. And God has given us the message of the gospel which brings reconciliation and hope. This was Paul's encouragement to the church at Ephesus. And by extension, his encouragement to us. But at this point of history, instead of focusing on the message of the gospel as we are encouraged and instructed, we are introducing social movements into the church, such as critical race theory. This movement, critical race theory, focuses on inequalities between the races, which further create division. So, understand this. The gospel message saves, unifies, and preserves mankind, while man's theories always damn, divide, and destroy mankind. Always. And in concert with this, in concert with these things that we are doing, man's, man's message, man's theories that we're introducing, in concert with this, the church is soft-peddling sin. And we're beginning to call good evil and evil good. Now, you may be saying, you know, Pastor, aren't you kind of overstating this, right? You're trying to, for effect, hyperbole, right? I don't think so. In the past few years, discussions have begun, begun in earnest within conservative churches that would have been unthinkable just a few years ago. Take, for instance, an article which was posted in Christianity Today. Listen to this. Polyamory, the pastor's next frontier. Actually, it's sexual frontier. And then here's the, the tagline. These once taboo relationships are showing up in churches across the U.S. Now, I'm not going to define what this is for interest of keeping this time family rated. But I want you to understand what is happening and what, what's, what's happening across Christianity. In this article, the authors warned that a new challenge is arising for our churches. So far, so good. I agree. But the article, the authors quickly begin to downplay the heinousness of this sinful lifestyle. Just listen as the authors instruct pastors such as me how to handle this issue when it appears in our churches. It says this, Another pastoral step is to distinguish elements of polyamory that are in violation of God's will from elements that are simply culturally unfamiliar with us or to us. Now, this is in Christianity Today. Understand that. A, a magazine that was started by Billy Graham. says this, when we want to lovingly call people to repentance, we should be precise about what needs repentance and what relationships or elements can and should be sanctified in Christ. For example, the notion of kinship in polyamory is a secular echo of the way Scripture calls church to function as a new family. And cultures that idolize individualism but actually isolate individuals, polyamory's focus on relationship, care, and affection can have a powerful pull. And in churches that idolize marriage and the nuclear family, 
Make sure that rings for a second. Oh, by the way, guys, you, you, idolize, you idolize marriage and the nuclear family, whether you knew it or not. That's what these guys are saying. In churches that idolize marriage and the nuclear family, polyamory's focus on hospitality and community can be an attractive alternative. We can acknowledge that many of the elements that draw people to polyamory, deep relationships, care for others, hospitality, and community are, in fact, good things. End quote. Beloved, we can certainly acknowledge that Scripture calls for the church to have close relationships which closely resemble familial bonds. And we can never make the mistake of draw, but we can never make the mistake of drawing a parallel from the church to a lifestyle which God absolutely condemns in no uncertain terms. We can't make that mistake. And yet that's what's happening. There's no doubt, beloved, that deep relationships, care for others, hospitality and community are in fact good things but we can't believe that this lifestyle that lifestyle can replicate these in any way doug wilson describes the authors he says this these are soft men writing soft words for a soft magazine published in a soft generation and all of it guaranteed to go down softly and the same response Wilson brings up the, the incident in Corinth where a man had taken his father's wife in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul, he says that Paul says that this one who has done this deed should be deeply felt and should be in a deeply felt, or should be, sorry, that this person that's in this deed, that has done this deed in Corinth, should be encouraged because they've done something that's deeply felt and they're in a deeply committed relationship with his father's wife. I butchered that. But you get the point. Absolutely not. That's not what Paul says. Paul says that this man should be delivered to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Just this past week, I talked to a pastor who was considering a move to Gainesville to pastor a local church here. He asked me the question if Gainesville was over-churched. Now, I think I, I know what he meant. So I told him that, yes, there is a church on just about every corner. And if that's what he's asking, then by all means, Gainesville is over-churched. But the real answer and the answer that I ultimately gave him is that Gainesville is by no means ultimately unchurched. I told him to lift up his eyes on the fields for they are white for the harvest. Beloved, we live in an age that is an age of confusion. And in the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, never has there been a greater opportunity for preaching than there is today. Because we're living in an age of disillusionment. End quote. Think about when Martin Lloyd-Jones was around, right? He died, I think, in 1981. Think about all that's changed since then. Beloved, you don't have to be a preacher behind the pulpit to be a preacher of the gospel. People all around you are disillusioned by what's happening in this world. And as a church, we need to be strong, which means that our church, Grace Bible Church, needs to be unified and that everyone here needs to be serving in the gospel ministry. 
If you are a believer, God has called you to the gospel ministry. He has called you to serve and work to see the gospel spread. You don't have to be gifted in preaching, teaching, or even evangelism to be involved in the gospel ministry. You could be a support for all those things. That's why there's a variety of gifts. The gifts in the church, they are all required for the proper functioning of the church. Which, it, which in, and our mission as a church is to go and make disciples of the nation. So if you're in a support role to that, you are supporting the mission or the, or the ministry of the gospel. Now you might say, well, where are you going with this, Brandon? Well, as Paul penned his letter to Ephesus, he was in chains. He was imprisoned by Christ for the sake of the Gentiles, but he didn't want the church at Ephesus to despair. Brothers and sisters, we live in some difficult and almost unprecedented times. But I would argue that there have been very difficult days for the church, and the answer has always been the same. It's the same answer that Paul gave the church at Ephesus. Press forward with the gospel. You see, it's in the difficulties that God's Word shines the brightest. Listen to Carl Truman. He says this, Yet for all the continuities and precedents that likely exist in the past for the way we live in the present, it's arguable that the times in which we live today do exhibit a number of pathologies whose coincidence is unprecedented. That is. This doesn't necessarily mean the church's response needs to be as novel as the time. Now, let me, let me give you, let me give you the, what he's saying here. He's saying, look, there are many things that are happening today that have occurred in the past, but the sheer number of destructive forces that we face may be, may be unprecedented. See, nothing, there's nothing new under the sun, but of, of all, that, all that we can face, the, the sheer number of what we're facing today as a church may be unprecedented. But then he goes on to say, but that doesn't mean that we should react in unprecedented ways, right? Listen again to Truman. He says this, Christianity in the second century was utterly marginal. Its members were under suspicion of indulging themselves in immoral shenanigans such as incest and cannibalism. The same laws that banned fire brigades banned churches from meeting because such meetings were seen as seditious and subversive of the common good. Then he ends with this. This is our historical precedent. Being banned. Being seen as seditious and subversive to society. Ultimately, beloved, we need the church to function as God intends for it to function. It's as simple as that. Truman goes on to say, but theologically the church is ultimately a work of the sovereign God. And what human beings need more is, the, is not the therapy that they may desire, but careful exposition and application of the Christian faith. Then he goes on to say, the doctrine of creation anchoring human nature and setting the scene for an understanding of our rebellion against God and our need for a redemption needs to be stressed. This is foundation for our, foundational for our understanding of who we are, and we must, must press home Christ's sufficiency 
in meeting that real need, end quote. Get all that? We need to teach Scripture. And we need to apply Scripture. And we need to teach that Christ is sufficient no matter what we face. And for this to happen, we need the church to be strong. And for the church to be strong, we need every believer to use their gifts for the glory of God. That is Paul's main point in Ephesians 3. That's it's his main point. This week, we're going to continue the characteristics of God's call to ministry. We covered four of them last week, and I hope to cover the last three today. Now, you may notice that they grew. Last week, I had five. Today, we have seven. just means I studied. It means you got your money's worth. Last week, we found that God calls all believers to ministry first in his prerogative. Paul writes that he was made a minister of the gospel. It was God's prerogative or God's choice to place Paul into ministry. He didn't, that is, Paul did not plan to be placed into this ministry. He set out to Damascus to, to, to persecute Christians, not to become one. So it was all according to God's choice. He had predestined Paul for salvation and for this ministry. And that fits Paul's theology before the foundation of the world. You have been chosen. So you, not only have you been chosen for salvation, if you are a believer, you have been chosen for the ministry that you're going to have. You've been chosen and you've been given the gifts to carry out that ministry. And, that, and, he, and God does so, secondly, by his preference. You see, Paul was placed into service to God as a gift of God's grace. In other words, Paul understood that he didn't earn this place. He wasn't chosen by virtue of being the best candidate. He was chosen by God according to God's own inclination. And God did so solely by his own preference. We don't make that choice, beloved. And he did so, in third characteristic, according to his power. You see, God had a plan. God had a plan to build his church, and he has the power to bring that about. And, th and, and so what Paul is saying here is that God's power then is actuated in the life of the church as he works through individual believers in the body of Christ. He gives us gifts, and he gives us the power to carry out ministry. We do so, and we do so in God's power. In this case, God's power has been revealed in the life of the Apostle Paul. God saved him, and he set him apart for this ministry, and he gave Paul the ability to carry through with the ministry to accomplish all that God intended for Paul to accomplish. And despite Paul's current situation being imprisoned, God was still using him to push forward the church. I hope you can recognize that it's only by God's power that he can use such a difficult situation like Paul's to further the gospel. It's, a, it's, a, it's amazing. Listen to Paul's heart in, in Philippians 1.12 concerning his imprisonment and how God was using it for good. He says this in Philippians 1.12, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. That most of the brethren trusting in the Lord, because, that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. He's saying, look, I'm imprisoned, but that is giving 
That is giving people courage to speak. You see, Paul was a man who completely trusted God. And those who accept God's plan for their lives and completely trust in His power to work through them will always be used by God, regardless of their position. That's the fourth characteristic of God's call to ministry. He calls us to ministry regardless of, of our position. And Paul said he, he is the least of the saints. He's the least of the saints. He's the least of the saints preaching an unfathomable message. He's a lowly man preaching a lofty gospel. Brethren, we are nothing but clay pots. All of us are nothing but clay pots in the presence or the service that is of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He will do with us as he will. But we must understand that we serve a good God. So anything that he does is good. And he will work to our good. We must never forget that whether we came from nothing or if we came from earthly kings, we are in service to the creator of all things. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul writes, but we have this treasure. What treasure, Paul? The treasure of the gospel. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God, not from ourselves. So we have to get out of the way. We have to understand that God uses us regardless of our position. This truth is proven in Scripture where God uses farmers and fishermen and shepherds and kings and palace officials and even prostitutes. He uses everyone from every position in life for His glory. So no matter what your former place in this life has been, He can and will use you if you are a believer. No matter your current place in this life, He can and will use you leads us to the fifth characteristic of God's call to ministry. And this is where we pick up in the text. God calls us to ministry according to his plan. According to his plan. Look at your text, verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. From the foundation of the world, God planned to save sinners for His glory. This plan began to unfold the moment Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Old Testament saints were given glimpses of this plan as as the Old Testament revelation unfolds. But in Genesis 3, God promised to send a Redeemer to to save the man and woman from their sin. And the rest of the Old Testament is the story of how God would fulfill this promise. The New Testament, on the other hand, begins with the birth of that Redeemer. So that's the connection. Genesis 3.15 to Matthew chapter 1, the, the, the New Testament begins with the birth of that Redeemer, the Son of David, the Son of God. That, the Gospels unfold His miraculous ministry on earth and end with the miracle of His resurrection and ascension. At the height of Jesus' earthly ministry, just as He sets His face to go to the cross, He makes this shocking announcement. A shocking announcement that wasn't understood prior to this. In Matthew 16, He promised that He would build His church. He told them that He would suffer and die in order to do so. He would shed his own blood to purchase the church. 
This wasn't foreseen in the Old Testament. This wasn't revealed. Yet there it is. It was God's plan all along. His plan of redemption all along was to send this Redeemer, His very own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to to redeem us from our sin and to build His church. The book of Acts picks up with His followers as they begin to preach the gospel and build the church as He promised. And as Acts progresses, it picks up on the story of a very unlikely hero, a man who started out persecuting the church to stop its progress. But in the ultimate example of the mantra, if you can't beat them, join them, the Lord gave the Apostle Paul the quite possibly the coolest and most difficult job the world has ever known. The Lord gives Paul the responsibility to bring to light his plan, to bring to light the mystery which was not completely understood until it was revealed by Paul or to Paul by Jesus himself. So Paul goes from persecutor of the church to preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles. And this was all in the magnificent plan of God. God planned Paul's ministry from the foundation of the world and not one aspect, not one detail of Paul's life was a mistake. Paul, or God that is used every moment to ready Paul to bring to light this mystery. Every moment of his life pointed to this ministry. Beloved, every moment of your life, if you're a believer, God is using to shape you for the ministry that he has for you. It may not be the the ministry that Paul has. It won't be the ministry that Paul has. But he is shaping you. He is is giving you uh, opportunities to be shaped in in your life to ready you for this whatever it is he has for you to do. Now there's a very neat connection here back to Ephesians 1.18. In Ephesians 1.18, he prayed for the saints at Ephesus that their, the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. Quite literally, then, the eyes of Paul's heart had been enlightened so that he would enlighten others to the truths of the gospel. Now Paul is praying that these saints, the saints at Ephesus, would go and do the same. And to give you a parallel, 2 Timothy 2.2 we hear this often, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So in other words, Paul expected the saints at Ephesus to continue teaching the words of sound doctrine so that others would be reconciled to God. And he hopes that they would continue to preach this mystery which he had brought, which had been brought to life through him. A mystery, look at your text, verse 9 again, look at your text. A mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Two weeks ago I told you a story of a rare red diamond which was found by a farmer on the bank of a river. The diamond had been hidden for thousands of years and was finally revealed in all its beauty by a master jeweler. Much like that diamond, the gospel has been hidden for ages waiting to be revealed by the master jeweler 
who would reveal every beautiful as or facet or facet facet of its of this beautiful mystery. But unlike that diamond which was hidden in the mud, this mystery was hidden in God who created all things. This mystery was hidden in the mind of God from the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, that is. We need to recognize that God had not revealed these things, but they did exist. They existed in the mind of God. It was His plan all along. None of, none of this, this world, the fall into sin, none of this took Him by surprise. This was His plan all along, and we're going to find later why. Now, the reference to God as creator of all things has, things has two important connections. We have already hit, we've already hit on one of them, Ephesians 1.4. It says that he chose us from before the foundation of the world. The only way that that could be true is that God is the creator of the world and all that it contains. That he's the creator of the world and all the, who dwell in it. That's Psalm 24, actually. Now, the men in here will laugh because this is a reference back to God as creator in Genesis 1 through 3. You see, we can't understand what God is accomplishing outside of understanding what he has already accomplished. He, he is the creator of the world. And we must recognize then that the people whom God has chosen are God's new creation. See the connection? They're God's new creation. In other words, God, God has begun this new creation with the church, His saints. Sheds a little different light on things, doesn't it? We are the beginning of that new creation. We are the beginning of that kingdom which is to come. And Paul, so Paul is graciously been given a strategic role in God's plan which he formulated from before the foundation of the world. Paul is to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and enlighten everyone, Jew and Gentile, showing them how they can be a part of his new creation. How we can be a part of that new creation. Let's look at the sixth characteristic of God's call to ministry God calls us to ministry according to his purposes Paul now gives the reason why he's been given the, the ministry to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ to the Gentiles and bring to light the mystery he does it look at your text verse 10 so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known beloved make no mistake Make no mistake, this is all about God and His glory. God declares in Isaiah 42, 8, He says this, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. God set His plan of redemption in motion from before the foundation of the world, and nothing, including Satan's rebellion or man's rebellion, has come as a surprise to God. He knew all along what He was doing. You know, that brings to, to light 
the question, the theodicy, you might know the question, problem of evil. If God is all-powerful and good, then why did he allow evil to enter the world? How can he allow all this suffering and death around us? I believe Paul answers that question here in verse 10. He did so, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. The word translated manifold means very colored, diversified. I like to say beautifully complex. Here in 3.10, it refers to God's wisdom, which is multifaceted. It's it's beautifully complex. It's, It's manifold. And perhaps there's a hint of the unfathomable wisdom of God in the creation of our world. You see, that that makes sense, right? When we look at the diversity in creation, without a doubt, the world we live in is a product of God's wisdom and understanding. Listen to Proverbs 3.19. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, He established the heavens. Jeremiah 10.12 says, It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding He has stretched out the heavens. You see, as Christians, we can't miss the unmistakable wisdom of God in His creative acts. Just look at any aspect of creation. Just this week, I was reading in a secular book that there's, there are universes inside the drop of a water, inside the, a droplet of water. Now, Obviously, that could be understood in some very dangerous ways. But if we simply understand that built into a droplet of water as it sits on a, on a flower's petal is complexity that we can't even fathom. And that's just the droplet of water. If we can understand that, then we can begin to understand and realize the complexity of our creation. And while God's wisdom and understanding are are demonstrated in the creation of the world, His manifold wisdom is best demonstrated in His redemption of a fallen creation and fallen man. The creation of a new humanity and a new heavens and and new earth. You see, that understanding, the understanding of what God is doing in redeeming mankind, will turn our world's upside down. Listen to J.I. Packer. He says this, Not until we become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our own littleness, distrusting our own thoughts, and willing to have our minds turned upside down, can divine wisdom become ours. End quote. Beloved, nothing reveals God's wisdom more than His condescension to become a man. Reverend James Haldane says this, that God should condescend to dwell with men on earth, that He should assume the form of a weak and fallen creature, that He should submit to all the pains and sorrows which mortality is heir to, might well excite the wonder and amazement of the universe. Truly, it is a thing which never could have entered into the heart of men or angels had not the Most High Himself revealed it by His Spirit. 
And yet in this act of condescension, in the incarnation of the Savior, and God dwelling with men on the earth, there is a display of power and wisdom so vast and incomprehensible that the more we meditate upon it, the more shall we be disposed to exclaim with the apostle, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. That's Romans 11.33, end quote. Paul did so. Paul preached and he brought to light this mystery so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through, through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Notice Paul's, I missed it actually, might now be made known. Notice Paul's time reference. This was all in God's perfect timing. Jesus came to earth right on time. Listen to, listen to Paul in Romans 5, 6. But for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God is never early and he's never late. In this case, he raised up Paul at the perfect time to be the, apostles to the, the apostle to the Gentiles. God has always raised up the right men for the job in accordance with his purposes. In this case, the text goes on to say that God uses the church to make known the manifold wisdom of God. In other words, you and I, as we, as we are here together gathering as the church, we are, a, we, we are a demonstration to the angelic realm that Christ has defeated death and sin. We are a demonstration that Christ has raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places. Outside of Christ, we'd be tribes killing one another, right? I mean, that's what it would descend to. In Ephesians 2, 6, Paul wrote that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show us, show, that is, show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in, in Christ Jesus. In other words, we are trophies of God's grace. We are trophies of God's grace which will be displayed in the ages to come, showing that God has defeated sin and death. And in the meantime, so that's in eternity, in the meantime, the church demonstrates the certainty of this coming reality. You may not realize it, but every time we gather and worship Christ, we demonstrate the supremacy of Christ over the angelic realm. You may not completely understand it, but every time you serve someone in the church, every time you use your gift, we show the heavenlies that Christ has defeated our selfishness. You may not fully comprehend it, but each time you show an act of love toward other saints, it validates the love that God has shown toward you and I. and is a demonstration to the angelic realm of God's love for us. Each time you forgive one another for a wrong that's been done, you demonstrate the forgiveness which Christ died on the cross to give us. And you do so to the heavenly realm. Beloved, this is the reason that Paul 
reminded the church at Ephesus that we're in a spiritual battle. In chapter 6, verse 11, it says, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You see, beloved, Satan and the demonic realm hate. Strong word, right? They hate the fact that that we are redeemed by Christ. We know that every time that someone comes to know Christ, there is a celebration in heaven. Luke 15.10, Christ says, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. But I can guarantee you, there is absolutely no joy among the demonic realm. They hate Christ and they hate us and they will not sit idly by and let us preach the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ unhindered won't happen so every time we gather every time we proclaim the Lord's death we're a demonstration to that heavenly realm The Apostle Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith. Earlier I brought up the problem of evil. Ultimately, I would say that the problem of evil is our problem. Because we see it from a human point of view. You see, the church, the church is a demonstration to the angelic authorities of the fullness of God's love. It's a demonstration to those angelic authorities of the abundance of God's mercy. It's a demonstration to the angelic authorities of the extent of God's grace. It's a demonstration of the ferocity of God's anger. But it's also a demonstration of the magnitude of His love and goodness, that is. You see, these fully demonstrate the beauty of God's wisdom in a way that could never have happened without rebellion and sin. Again, we have to remember that this is demonstrated to the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places. Now, we're going to conclude here in verse 10. We'll pick back up in verse 11 next time. 